Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning to you, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time, sir. Morning, Aubrey. So I saw that uh, that uh, you guys have now come to find out what the DNA of um, of dinosaurs m- might have looked like. Yeah, this is a very interesting paper by researchers at the University of Kent. Uh, it's out in the journal Nature Communications this week. And what this group did was to not look at dinosaur DNA itself because dinosaurs disappeared from the Earth about 66 million years ago or so. And uh, we think that what prompted them to shuffle off the planet was the arrival of a very large asteroid which smashed into the Earth's surface in the Gulf of Mexico and caused enormous climate change. And dinosaurs were unable to evolve fast enough to cope with that, so they went extinct. But they have left their legacy behind on Earth because uh, many people who are paleontologists will tell you that, in fact, the world is still full of dinosaurs because they're all around us all the time in the form of birds because birds are the closest descendants that dinosaurs have on Earth today. And that's because one group of dinosaurs, as dinosaurs evolved, turned into winged creatures with feathers that could fly. And they were the direct precursors of the birds we have today. So the point that Becky O'Connor and her colleagues are exploring from the University of Kent is if we look at the genome structure and the DNA structure of modern birds we can probably learn quite a bit about dinosaurs. But then what we don't know is, well, has that changed very much in the 66 million years since the dinosaurs went extinct in the modern day? How would we know if birds really have a dinosaur DNA-like structure or whether or not it's changed? The way they've got round this, very intriguingly, is to say, well, when did animals on Earth today last have an ancestor that they shared with the dinosaurs? And it turns out that turtles and reptiles and therefore birds, all have a common ancestor way back in evolutionary history about 250 million years ago. They haven't shared any ancestors since. So if we look at the genome structure of a turtle, if we look at the genome structure of a reptile, and we look at a bird, then we can ask, well, in what way are they similar or different? And the really extraordinary thing is that they are really, really similar. Turtles and birds have really similar DNA organization and in fact they've got more than 30 chromosomes and they've got some really big chunky chromosomes that have quite a few genes on them but then they've got lots of these miniature micro chromosomes that have very few genes on so because turtles have that and because birds have that and they would have shared an ancestor before the dinosaurs came along that tells us the dinosaurs must have had that too so we now have a really clear insight into the arrangements of the chromosomes in dinosaurs and therefore how the genes would have been organized in the dinosaurs as well because they've been able to compare the two so it's almost like a molecular post-mortem going back a quarter of a billion years and that we now have an insight into how an animal that no longer walks the earth would have organized its genetic information which is extraordinary Chris, uh, I suppose for science's sake, you know, for the advancement of knowledge, we want to know all these issues. But, you know, a few years ago, they made this movie, The Jurassic Park. Are we perhaps anywhere close to making Jurassic Park a reality? Regrettably, 
not. Michael Crichton ah, made millions by that. writing Jurassic Park and, and it really captured the imagination because the time when Jurassic Park was made and uh, written and then turned into a book coincided with a technological revolution in molecular biology. We began to gain new insights into how DNA works, how our genomes work and, and we began to engineer DNA and change the behaviour of cells and even whole creatures. People were reprogramming bacteria to make, say, human insulin so that we were no longer... Uh, needing to to take insulin from animals to treat diabetes. So there was enormous enthusiasm at that time, and it fueled imaginations of people like Michael Crichton. The harsh reality is quite different, which is that dinosaurs haven't walked the earth for millions of years. The longest we can wind back the genetic clock and get DNA from fossils at the moment, the largest, the the furthest back published evidence for this, S.K. Villaslav, who's a researcher both from the University of Copenhagen and the University of Cambridge, he holds the record at the moment for sequence the oldest DNA. His DNA sequence goes back more than half a million years. He sequenced the genetic information of a horse from half a million years ago. We have not succeeded in getting any older DNA samples yet. But given the quality of work that's being done around the world, given the quality of preservation of some fossils that scientists are now finding, including in South Africa, I would watch this space. We may see that number go back um, significantly in the near future, but I don't think we're going to get it back to the point where we'll have real dinosaur DNA um, or DNA sequence, and from that we would we could compile a, a real dinosaur. We're not going to do yeah, that anytime yeah. soon. I go now straight to the lines. James, Shane in Randburg. Hi, Shane. Uh, hi, Aubrey and uh, Dr. Chris. Go for it, Shane. Uh, sticking with uh, the dinosaurs, a couple of years ago, I think it was the Dr. Um, Mary uh, Fleischer um, from University of North Carolina discovered uh, some tissue and blood in a dinosaur fossil. Yeah. And from dating methods, um, et cetera, that was not supposed to be possible. Um, obviously, uh, these are carbon life forms, which are not supposed to live for beyond, let's say, 30 or 60,000 years. Yeah. And my question is whether they've um, come up with any plausible theory explaining how uh, carbon life form can be preserved for 66 billion year, uh, million years. Yeah. It, it, it was that old. Okay, Shane. Um, uh, Dr. Chris Smith? Hello, Shane. I've uh, met Mary Schreitzer who is the person who uh, published the paper in the journal Science. It was in about the year 2004-05. She actually first published this. Um, she told me that what happened was a bit of a mistake. She had some T-Rex fossils. She was trying to examine them chemically, so she put them in a solution to remove some of the rock from the sample to dissolve out some of the minerals that uh, these fossils were made from. Forgot about it, came back into the laboratory, uh, laboratory uh, a few days later and discovered that, in fact, rather than just falling into dust, where she'd removed the minerals, there was some kind of tissue matrix left behind. And so she speculated in her paper that this could be a rich, original dinosaur protein material or, or something like that. Looking down a microscope, she saw structures that were very reminiscent of what she thought might be blood cells. Uh, therefore, she decided to try to extract some, some genetic information from the samples. Um, she did extract some genetic information and also some protein. And what she was able to do was to compare the genetic sequence she got from those samples with 
the DNA of existing dinosaurs called birds. She also did this uh, for the proteins. And then this led to speculation that perhaps inside a fossil there might be real tissue preserved and that we might be able to get genuine genetic information from this. Um, this has subsequently not been repeated. I haven't seen any evidence corroborating these findings since and some people have speculated that in fact because it's so easy to contaminate these specimens with modern day DNA that in fact that might be some of the explanation for what she claimed to have discovered. I think if this were um, likely to be that easy to do people would have replicated it and replicated it in large amounts since and it has been ominously quiet ever since she published that paper so i'm not saying it's not possible but i'm not saying it's easy either um so we we do think that we're on the same page as you which is scientists think that the damage chemically that happens to a molecule as it ages over millions of years just means that eventually there's nothing of any value left behind um that actually is chemically meaningful there's just rock rueda in on decker's park hi Good morning. Good morning to um, you, Rueda. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, right now there's a volcano erupting and there's some poisonous uh, lava flowing into the ocean. Why is that? Why are those gases poisonous? Well, good morning. Um, yes, you're referring to the eruption that's happening in Hawaii. Hawaii is yeah. on a yeah. hot spot in the Pacific Ocean. And this is where there is an upwelling of magma, the hot runny rock from inside the rock, inside the earth, uh, close to the surface. And it's been erupting there for hundreds of years. In fact, Hawaii has one of the world's oldest uh, volcanic monitoring stations. It was first started more than 100 years ago, and that's how long the eruptions there have been going on. The current eruption is happening on Kilauea, which is the big volcano on the big island of Hawaii. And in recent weeks, certainly at the end of April, things began to change because where there'd been this lava lake which had a level of lava rising and falling regularly like a a metronome and there was also another fissure which was just gently oozing lava um, on a, a regular basis, this suddenly changed and the level of lava in the lava lake plummeted. It's gone down 300 metres now actually and the fissure that was issuing lava stopped and then these new cracks began to open up and earthquakes began to happen And then this lava began to emerge from a new site in the middle of a heavily populated area, which has caused the current crisis. Now, what's actually happening underground is that as this hot magma comes to the surface, it is decompressed. So when it's inside the earth, it has the mass of all the rock above it on it, and it's under enormous pressure because the inside of the earth, it's very hot, it's also confined, so there's very high pressure. This means there are a lot of gases and other things dissolved in the hot lava. When it comes to the surface, it can expand, and this means the gas can escape. Those gases include sulphur compounds like sulphur dioxide and hydrogen sulphide. They also involve, uh, they also inclu- include carbon compounds like carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. There are also oxides of nitrogen and other exotic species and possibly cyanides and things in there as well. Uh, and things made locally in the high temperature chemistry that's going on when the lava emerges. These chemicals, if they're present in high enough concentrations, won't be blown away fast enough to avoid poisoning people. And there have been many accounts in the past of when there's been an eruption, these chemicals will very quickly rise in concentration locally. Many of them can be heavier than air 
And so if the local geography means that you're living in a sort of bowl where actually you're below the level of the surrounding land, then these gases can flow like water into a lake and they'll settle there and they can asphyxiate people. And there have been very many documented situations where, say, um, gases dissolved in volcanic lakes can suddenly erupt up to the surface, spill over and and drown a community in carbon dioxide, for example. So these gases are not pleasant. They do damage to you in various ways. Some of them are very oxidising. Carbon monoxide asphyxiates you because it locks onto your haemoglobin, the pigment in your red blood cells that carries oxygen around your body, and it stops the red cells carrying oxygen so that your tissues effectively asphyxiate. If you have carbon dioxide, you can't get oxygen in because the carbon dioxide gets in the way of the oxygen getting into your lungs and in your bloodstream. So there are all lots of many different ways that you can be poisoned by these things. So volcanoes are beautiful, they're impressive, but they're also incredibly dangerous. I've got an SMS um, question here for you, um, Chris. Good morning, all. Good morning, all, Dr. Chris. I'm being uh, treated for a prostate problem uh, and am a urine bag for the past six months. Can you please advise what foods are good to improve the function of the bladder? Um, I am a male aged 77. I'm not really sure whether that uh, makes any sense to you, Dr. Chris. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a fact of life of being male that about 100% of people will get an enlarged prostate as we age. The prostate is the gland that sits around the neck of the bladder and it has a number of jobs to do, but one of them is to make very secretions which are added to seminal fluid. But it responds to hormones like testosterone and this has a growth effect on the gland and as you age, because your prostate cells are seeing a long-term exposure to testosterone, they proliferate and everyone gets a a growing prostate with age. And this is called benign um, prostatic hyperplasia. As the prostate Mm. gets bigger, what it does is to encroach on the neck of the bladder. So the pipe which carries urine out of the bladder, which has to pass through the prostate, can become squeezed. And, And one particular part of the back of the prostate gland can end up projecting into or blocking off that urine pipe the urethra and this means it can become harder to pass urine so the bladder has to become bigger and more muscular and this can cause problems because you can end up with urine not completely leaving the bladder so you end up with a residual volume and that can encourage infection and there are luckily a number of treatments some of them um, you don't actually have to to do anything to the prostate but you can take some drugs that can help things in other circumstances sometimes it's helpful to Uh, remove some of the prostate tissue to make it easier for the urine to leave Um, in in all cases doctors will do the most minimally invasive thing they can get away with doing Um, but one consequence of this is that you can get some bleeding you can get some infection and it may require catheterization for a while which it sounds like has happened to this person Um, in terms of what you can do to minimize the risk of this happening the answer is there's not a lot you can do it's one consequence of age if you start to spot the symptoms you should seek medical advice promptly because there are a number of reasons why this might be happening not just benign ones so it's worth getting checked out to make sure that there's not something more nasty happening and also intervention before it becomes a serious problem is likely to have a better outcome than intervention if you leave it till you've got serious problems but because it's a bit embarrassing people often don't mention it and they suffer in silence for a very long time before they then uh, get sorted out so seek seek advice promptly indeed let's quickly take a call from esther in pretoria esther hi 
Hello, Esther. I just want to know the, the reading of astrology and numerology and cosmic cycles. Uh, uh, psychics use it. Is it real or not? Is it scientifically real or not? Um, uh, Dr. Chris, um, astrology, numerology, is it uh, real? Is it, is, it, is it scientific? And cosmic cycles, yeah. Hi, Esther. In a word, no. Um, in terms of um, of astrology, no, there's not really any evidence supporting any of this. Um, but the thing is, it, it makes people happy, and there is evidence supporting the fact that if people feel happy, there's a placebo effect. So that's part of it. Um, in terms of understanding how the heavenly bodies move, though, this was used for various purposes in the past because people who discovered how the heavenly bodies orbited had an enormous advantage over other people because they could make predictions about what was going to happen and then they could look really impressive so they could say to people i am very powerful in three weeks time there's going to be an eclipse and the moon is going to disappear and i'm going to make it happen they knew this because they plotted the movements of various celestial bodies and they knew it was going to happen. Um, it, it would therefore make them look very, very impressive and everyone would be wowed out when, of course, the moon did show an eclipse and they would think this person was terribly scary and terribly important. So it was used as a way of deceiving people into having respect for people, but there's no scientific justification for a lot of this stuff. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, uh, very quickly from Bokosi, Bokosi in Santon. Bokosi, good morning to you, sir. Uh, apologies, go ahead. Yeah, mine is about uh, the theory of an expanding universe. Yes. What is it expanding into? Secondly, um, we are told that thousands, uh, even millions of galaxies in the cosmos what are the possibility of them uh, colliding and the consequences? Thank you, Alrissa, on the radio. Thank you very much, Bukhosi in Santon. Uh, Dr. Chris? Hello, Bukhosi. Right, so the first question is, the universe is expanding. What's it expanding into? Well, the answer is, we don't know. Um, the universe is everything. If you take that definition, then the universe isn't expanding into anything at all because it is everything already. It's just getting bigger. In terms of uh, what's out there in the uh, rest of the universe, we're in one galaxy, that's the Milky Way galaxy. We think that there's something like 100 billion other galaxies a bit like our galaxy elsewhere in the universe. And yes, some of them are on a collision course. For instance, um, the Milky Way, our galaxy, will collide with the Andromeda galaxy, which is moving towards us at a fairly fast pace in a few, well, I think it's something like 30, is it 4 billion years time, I think, we're going to collide with Andromeda. So we won't be here to see it, um, but, but it will happen. Now, when these collisions happen, then gravity will be the king because there will be um, the meeting of different uh, entities which are moving in different directions at different speeds. They will dissipate their energy and some planets will be captured, some stars will be captured. They'll form some new aggregation of material which is, or the structure of which will be governed by the gravitational effects of the merging of all of that material. Some things will just carry on straight throughout the other side because um, although, although we think of galaxies as a condensation of stars, and indeed they are, there's a lot of empty space in there. So just because a galaxy goes near our galaxy doesn't mean we're going to have a huge great collision in space. Um, but we certainly will see a reconfiguration of, of those two entities when they pass through each other. Dr. Chris, I want to thank you very much for your time. We've run out of time. And uh, thank you so much. As always, uh, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Aubrey. See you soon, everyone. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? 
Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.